Hello, dreamers, and welcome to the latest episode of California Dreaming. Before we dive into today's case, I have a couple of things that I would like to go over first. This podcast is an independent one-woman show, which means it depends on you to keep the lights on and the treat jar full. And there are a number of ways that you can help. You can leave a nice rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you listen to your favorite shows on. That helps give us more visibility and drives us up the charts so new listeners can find us. You can recommend the show on social media and in true crime fan groups. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Give us some comments, likes, and shares. And if you would like to go the extra mile, you can join the show's Patreon. For as little as $1 a month, you can gain access to many, many hours of exclusive content you won't be able to hear anywhere else. So it's not that bad of a deal. This week, I'd like to thank Nicole S., Angela F., Christina S., Laura E., and Stacia for either joining Patreon, raising their pledge to the next tier, or making a one-time donation through PayPal. And you can make a donation through PayPal if a monthly subscription isn't something that you're interested in by using the email californiapod at gmail.com. Okay, let's get started with today's episode. In November of 2018, California Dreaming released episode 70 entitled The Tale of Sherry Papini. Two years earlier, on Wednesday, November 2nd, 2016, Sherry's husband, Keith Papini, called 911 to report his wife missing. He stated that when he arrived home from work that day from his job at Best Buy, Sherry was nowhere to be found and the children had not yet been picked up from daycare. When Keith used the Find My iPhone app, he discovered that Sherry's phone had been abandoned about a mile away from their house. This is where the first red flags in this case came up because of the way the phone was found. It was lying on the ground. The earbuds were with it, along with some strands of blonde hair. The alarming thing was that the earbuds were neatly rolled up and placed on top of the phone, which isn't likely to happen if the earbuds had been forcibly yanked out of her ears, which was the implication because of the way the hair was found with the items. I remember going into great detail in the original episode about this, about the hair getting yanked out along with the earbuds and how unlikely that would have been if Sherry had been out jogging, which was part of the theory that she was jogging when she was grabbed and that the earbuds along with the strands of her hair, had been yanked out by her attackers. She would later explain that she was ordered to put the phone down onto the ground and that she pulled out her own hair and put it with it so that everyone would understand that something had happened to her. But anyway, I stated that it felt like the earbuds had been planted, which kind of goes along with her story, not only because of the neat way the earbuds were rolled up and placed on the phone, But due to the fact that it was likely Sherry's hair was up in a ponytail or in a bun while she was jogging, so her hair was not in the way when the earbuds were yanked, it was just fishy, at least for many of us interested in the case right from the start. But like I said, she explained that she was the one who placed the hair with the earbuds so that it would be identified as hers and that it would give a signal that something had gone wrong but I don't think we knew that at the time. Then, miraculously, Sherry reappeared 22 days later on Thanksgiving Day, 
Thursday, November 24th, about 150 miles or 240 kilometers south of Redding, California, where she was abducted from. We will get into the details of the condition Sherry was in when she was found a little later when I go through the timeline. Her husband Keith gave his first interview to 2020 at the beginning of December of 2016, just a week or so since Sherry had been found. But since then, all has been relatively quiet. That is until this March 3rd of 2022, when we all got the news that Sherry had been arrested and charged with making false statements to police and federal agents, and also she was charged with mail fraud. We will get to the outcome of the arrest, but first, let's refresh our memories and briefly go over the timeline of events following Sherry's alleged kidnapping. As stated, Keith reported Sherry missing on the afternoon of November 2, 2016. The Shasta County Sheriff's Department began a search of the area where Sherry was believed to have gone missing from. Keith showed police where he discovered her phone. I believe it was Keith who took a picture of the phone when he found it to preserve the state that he found it in before he picked it up, which was helpful in determining later on that things weren't adding up. When Keith spoke to 2020 a few days later in his first televised interview, and I don't think he's given any since, he stated in no uncertain terms that Sherry was definitely taken against her will. At this point, if law enforcement with the Shasta County Sheriff's Department thought there was something off, they definitely kept it very quiet and very close to the vest. And it pretty much stayed that way for the next five and a half years. And the reason for that was because, well, it was a good idea to keep quiet to begin with as much as they could, but also because of a kidnapping and sexual assault survivor named Denise Huskins, which was a case also covered on this show. It was episode 18 entitled The Gone Girl Hoax, which was released a year before the episode on Sherry back in November of 2017. To quickly refresh your memory on that case, early in the morning on March 23, 2015, Denise Huskins, along with her boyfriend at the time, were in their home in Vallejo, California, which is about a three-hour drive south of Redding, where the Papinis resided. They were sleeping when they were awakened by an intruder with a gun who yelled that this was a robbery. The man tried talking with a voice that was kind of robotic sounding when he said, we are not here to hurt you, lie face down. The couple were bound with zip ties, blacked out goggles, they were blacked out with tape to cover their eyes, and they were forced to drink some sort of sedative. Before the kidnapper left, taking Denise with him, he played a pre-recorded message that digitally altered his voice in which he said that Denise would be returned in 48 hours time. Another recording he played with the same altered voice warned the boyfriend Aaron to not contact police, otherwise Denise would be killed. He then forced Denise into the trunk of Aaron's car and proceeded to drive for several hours to some other destination. When they arrived, Denise was force-fed more sedatives, and she was raped. Meanwhile, Aaron received an email 
demanding a ransom in the amount of $17,000 to be paid for Denise's return. But he decided to contact police anyway. And from minute one, Aaron was met with nothing but skepticism and hostility. And the Vallejo police immediately let it be known to him that they did not believe a word that he was saying and insisted that the details of his story were so far-fetched that there was no way that his story was real. Aaron was then strip-searched, completely naked, while they photographed his body. He was interrogated for 18 hours. He was subjected to a lie detector test, which he was told he failed miserably. Well, after a harrowing two days, Denise's kidnapper released her, and she returned to her mother's home. The ransom had not been paid, but the kidnapper ended up dropping Denise off close to her parents' house, which was some 400 miles or 643 kilometers south of Vallejo in Huntington Beach, California. So technically, the kidnapper did keep his word that he would release her after two days, but that only made police even more skeptical of their story. And the police then went to the media, with Vallejo Police Lieutenant Kenny Park letting it be publicly known that Aaron and Denise had staged the kidnapping because they were looking for 15 minutes of fame. So Denise attributed her attempt to build a rapport with her kidnapper that played a role in her being released. She did what she could to humanize herself to him or them because I believe the kidnapper did work alone but led Denise to believe that there were more people in on it And I think to this day, she still thinks that there was more, but investigators believe that they got the one person who was responsible for what happened to her. When she was dropped off in her mother's neighborhood, Denise had been instructed to count backwards from 10 while the kidnapper drove off. Her eyes were taped shut as she listened to his vehicle drive away. A few hours later, her story was met with the same skepticism as Aaron had been for the two days that she was gone, and the Vallejo police even threatened to charge her with staging a hoax. Thinking that she was going to go from being held captive to being held in jail, Denise decided to hire an attorney. The FBI had also become involved in Denise's case, and there came a point where they offered Denise immunity if she admitted that the kidnapping was staged, but she turned down the offer. Meanwhile, Denise had become known as Gone Girl in the media, and she was being relentlessly attacked online. Lieutenant Kenny Park further destroyed the couple's reputation by holding a press conference and publicly calling Aaron and Denise liars and assured the community that there weren't any home invasion robbers going around and breaking into random homes in the area. Ultimately, neither Aaron nor Denise were ever charged with any crimes. And then in August of 2015, about three months after Denise was abducted, police were investigating the case of a home invasion carried out by a man wearing a mask about 40 miles or 64 kilometers away over in Alameda County. That investigation led to the recovery of a laptop that had belonged to Aaron, zip ties, goggles that had been blacked out with tape, and there were hairs stuck to that tape that were found to have come from Denise Huskins. 
and all of those items were in the possession of a man named Matthew Muller. He was a former Marine, a Harvard graduate, and a disbarred attorney. In 2016, Muller pleaded guilty to one count of federal kidnapping and was given a sentence of 40 years. He was facing additional state charges of kidnapping and two counts of rape by force, robbery, and burglary, but in November of 2020, Muller was deemed mentally unfit to stand trial and is now serving his time at a mental health institution in Solano County. Denise and Aaron were able to read their victim impact statements to Muller in court. So the Vallejo Police Department ended up eating crow to an extent. Aaron and Denise were awarded an out-of-court settlement of $2.5 million and were sent apology emails from the city of Vallejo and the Vallejo Police Department. But nobody ever came to them in person to offer an apology. So all the couple could do was express their hopes for the community to be kept safe by the police department committing themselves to change when it comes to the way that they handle situations like theirs. Aaron and Denise have since settled in Santa Cruz. They got married and they have a daughter they named Olivia, who was born on March 25th, 2020. Denise Huskins is often mentioned as a possible reason why the Shasta County Sheriff's Department kept so very quiet about the Papini case from day one, especially if the investigators assigned to the case suspected Sherry's kidnapping was staged. It was a huge mistake for the Vallejo police to jump to the conclusion while Denise was still missing that Aaron was lying, no matter how outlandish the story sounded. Crazier things have happened. So this guy had blacked out goggles and a tape recorder. A serial killer, David Parker Ray, had a whole setup, often referred to as the toy box. He spent about $100,000 turning his trailer into his very own torture dungeon filled with whips and chains, pulleys, straps, claps, surgical blades and saws, sex toys, syringes, a fur-lined coffin, a box with the hole cut out to put around victims' heads, anatomically correct dolls that he used to tie up with chains and bondage. He drew diagrams depicting the various methods and techniques to inflict pain on his victims. He also had an electrical generator that he built himself. Ray had mirrors on the ceilings, a gynecologist-type examination table with various contraptions to immobilize victims into various positions while they were raped by him and sometimes his friends, among other things that were done to these victims. So, a pair of blacked-out goggles and a voice recorder is not that outlandish. Getting back to Sherry Papini's timeline. In the pre-dawn hours of November 24, 2016, it was Thanksgiving Day and 22 days since Sherry had gone missing. The Shasta Sheriff's Department announced that Sherry had been found safe by the California Highway Patrol officers in Yolo County, approximately 140 miles or 233 kilometers south of where Sherry disappeared from. The CHP had responded to numerous 911 calls made by witnesses who saw Sherry running in the middle of the 5 freeway. One of the passers-by was a truck driver who did pull over to help Sherry and also made 
his own 911 call. Sherry was found with a chain around her waist that one of her arms was bound to, and she had other bindings around her other wrist as well as around each of her ankles. Sherry had also lost a considerable amount of weight as she returned weighing only 87 pounds or 40 kilograms. She also had been burned with some sort of hot instrument on her right shoulder. Her nose was swollen. She had bruises about her face and body, several rashes all over the place, ligature marks, and numerous burns. Sherry was brought to the hospital for examination where her clothing was collected for DNA testing. Also on that same day, detectives that were assigned to Sherry's case had attempted to interview her at the hospital as well as on an ambulance ride to another facility, but she refused to speak to the investigators. So what they did was ask her husband if he would conduct the interview for them, to which he agreed. They gave Keith a tape recorder, and while he asked Sherry questions, the detectives remained in the hospital room. It was during this interview that Sherry stated that she was kidnapped by two Hispanic women, and she also asserted that law enforcement was involved in the abduction, which is why she was supposedly afraid to talk to police. She described the women enough for there to eventually be two composite drawings made of these suspects. Sherry stated that they spoke in Spanish most of the time, and they always had masks covering their faces as well as black leather gloves on their hands. She also described being kept in a closet with a bucket that had cat litter in it for her to use as a toilet. Four days after she was recovered, Sherry applied to the California Victim Compensation Board. She ended up receiving $30,694.15. She used the money to pay for the ambulance that picked her up, therapy, and some home improvement projects. The following year, in October of 2017, the Shasta County Sheriff's Department announced that Sherry had male DNA on her clothing when she was found in Yolo County, but that DNA did not match Keith. And from that point on, everything and everyone basically went radio silent for the most part. On June 9, 2020, FBI agents had collected some items that had been discarded outside of a home in the city of Costa Mesa, California. The home was the residence of an ex-boyfriend of Sherry's, and among the items collected was an empty green tea bottle. The items the FBI collected were sent to their lab for testing. A month later, on July 10, 2020, the results of the DNA testing revealed that the DNA from that ex-boyfriend found on that green tea bottle matched the male DNA that was found on Sherry's clothing that was collected when she was found. So, by 2020, while we were in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, the FBI was still actively investigating Sherry's case when, for many of us, she had become a distant memory. I don't recall hearing about the dumpster dive or the DNA results when it happened, but not only was the world a mess, I was a mess too in like my personal life, so I did not hear this breaking news at the time. On August 10, 2020, the ex-boyfriend was interviewed. His name is James Reyes and he admitted that he helped Sherry run away because he believed that her husband Keith was beating and raping her and she was desperate to escape. He also said in the 22 days that Sherry was with him, she never left his Costa Mesa home. 
Sherry was finally arrested on March 3, 2022, and charged with making false statements to law enforcement and federal agents, and she was also charged with mail fraud. Five days later, Sherry was let out of the Sacramento County Jail on a $120,000 bond. On April 12, 2022, Sherry signed a plea deal and was expected to plead guilty and admit the kidnapping and everything was staged. On April 18, 2022, Sherry appeared in federal court on Zoom and officially entered her guilty plea. She is scheduled to be sentenced on July 11th. While Sherry could have faced a maximum of five years in prison and fines of up to $250,000 for making false statements to federal law enforcement officers and as many as 25 years in prison and another $250,000 in fines for the mail fraud, Federal prosecutors have recommended a sentence of eight months in prison. Sherry was also ordered to pay $309,688 in restitution to various government agencies, including the California Victims' Compensation Board, as a part of the plea for perpetrating the kidnapping hoax. In a statement released through her attorney, Sherry stated, I am deeply ashamed of myself for my behavior and so sorry for the pain that I've caused my family, my friends, and all the good people who needlessly suffered because of my story and those who worked so hard to try and help me. I will work the rest of my life to make amends for what I've done. But that wasn't enough for Keith. Just days after Sherry entered her guilty plea, and in some places I've read the very next day, Keith filed for divorce. He was given custody of the children through an emergency order. There was a hearing on the divorce scheduled for May 9th, but there wasn't much about it in way of news that I could find online. It might be brought up again after Sherry's sentencing in July. The following information comes directly from the federal criminal complaint that was filed on March 2nd, 2022. Sherry was arrested the next day. I thought about going through this court document and picking out key details, but all of it is so fascinating that I'm just going to share most of it with you. So if you haven't read the charging documents on Sherry Papini, you're in luck because you're about to hear it all right now. And you might actually fall asleep, which is a good thing because that's what I use to fall asleep in the evening podcasts. So throughout the document, James Reyes is referred to as the ex-boyfriend. But since we know his name, we will refer to him as James. First, it gives the following brief overview of Sherry's case. In November of 2016, Sherry went missing for several weeks and law enforcement conducted a nationwide search for her. When she returned, she told law enforcement that she had been abducted by two Hispanic women. She also provided details of the alleged Hispanic women to an FBI sketch artist and sent text messages to FBI agents about instruments the Hispanic women used to inflict injuries on her. However, this was a false narrative Sherry fabricated. In truth, she was staying with the former boyfriend, James Reyes, and harmed herself to support her false statements. James Reyes told investigators that Sherry stayed with him at his house during the dates of her disappearance, and that it was Sherry who reached out to him and asked him to pick her up in Redding, California. DNA evidence recovered from Sherry's clothing she was wearing when she returned matched James's DNA. 
Phone records show that Sherry and James were talking to one another as early as December of 2015. James told investigators that he and Sherry used prepaid phones to talk to one another. This was corroborated through evidence of two prepaid cellular phones that were tied to James. They would communicate with each other, one from Sherry's location and the other from James's location. Historical cell site analysis and toll records of the prepaid phones indicated that James traveled to Reading on or about the date of Sherry's disappearance. Sherry and James exchanged text messages the morning Sherry disappeared. They met together around the location where Sherry was last seen, and they traveled to Southern California together. James's cousin, who is not named, so we will refer to him as cousin, told investigators that the cousin saw Sherry in James's apartment on two different occasions, both times unrestrained. James also told investigators that approximately three weeks later, he had a friend rent a car for him when he drove Sherry back to Northern California, which was corroborated by car rental records and the odometer reading on the rental car. When Sherry was interviewed by a federal agent in August of 2020, she was warned that it was a crime to lie to federal agents and was confronted with evidence that she was not abducted but instead arranged to have James pick her up and take her to his home. Sherry did not retract her kidnapping story and instead continued to make false statements about her purported abductors and denied James's involvement. In addition, Sherry caused the California Victims Compensation Board to pay over $30,000 in fraudulent victim assistance money based on her false kidnapping story, including reimbursements for therapy sessions, window blinds, and ambulance services. At least one of these reimbursements was via the U.S. mail. A nationwide search for Sherry was initiated when she went missing. It started at approximately 5.50 p.m. on November 2, 2016, when husband Keith reported Sherry missing from their home. She was the 34-year-old mother of two young children who lived in the Mountain Gate area of Shasta County near Redding. Keith told the Shasta County Sheriff's deputies when he arrived home from work, he was unable to locate Sherry or their two children. Keith learned that the children had not been picked up from daycare, as was customary. He checked his Find My iPhone app and was able to locate Sherry's phone near Sunrise Drive in Redding. He went to the location and retrieved the phone. Sherry was last seen running on Sunrise Drive and was believed to have gone missing between the hours of 10 a.m. and 12 p.m. The Shasta County Sheriff's requested FBI assistance in the investigation into Sherry's disappearance. Extensive searches were conducted for Sherry all over Shasta County, as well as in several states, as the investigation gained worldwide attention. Hundreds of tips were submitted to the Shasta County Sheriff's Office and to the FBI. Numerous items of potential evidence were collected from various searches, with none of them leading to Sherry's whereabouts. Immediately upon Sherry's disappearance, law enforcement scoured the area where she appeared to have gone missing. Keith showed detectives where he found her cell phone and earbuds with blonde hairs entangled in them at the south corner of Sunrise Drive and Old Oregon Trail, about two feet off the road. Keith thought the cell phone had been placed which he described as weird. Sherry's purse and jewelry were accounted for, 
but Keith did not know if any unusual banking activity was occurring in Sherry's bank accounts. In follow-up interviews, Keith stated that he and Sherry did not have marital issues, but occasionally fought as any married couple would. The last fight they had was in October of 2016 over a messy room. Keith stated Sherry could get loud when she was angry and knew how to push his buttons. An analysis of Sherry's cell phone found two phone numbers stored under women's names that actually belonged to men. These men are referred to as Man 1 and Man 2 in the charging documents. In a text conversation between Man 1 and Sherry on November 1, 2016, the two discussed meeting in Reading. Additionally, travel records show Man 1 traveled to San Francisco on October 28, 2016 and flew back to Michigan on November 2, 2016, the day of Sherry's disappearance. Investigators traveled out of state to interview Man 1 and to look for Sherry. She was not located and Man 1 told investigators that Sherry and he met approximately in 2011 when Sherry was out of town for work. The two spent the weekend together and continued to exchange flirtatious text messages throughout the years. Although they had planned to meet during Man 1's trip to California, he returned home without seeing her. Investigators also interviewed Man 2, who described meeting Sherry around 2000 or 2001 at a Friday Night Live youth program, and he dated her for several years. Man 2 described Sherry as an attention-hungry person who told stories to get people's attention. Man 2 stated that Sherry fabricated stories of being the victim of abuse from her family, father, and then Man 2 after the couple broke up. On November 16, 2016, investigators contacted by phone the director of the Friday Night Live youth program who knew Sherry from the program. The director, who isn't named in the charging documents, but I'll refer to that person as director because the documents called this person person one, but I would just rather call that person the director. So the director stated that Sherry was the only student the director feared having in the program because Sherry was good at creating different realities for people so that they would see what she wanted them to see, which got her really good attention. Investigators learned that Sherry had a previous marriage to a man not named in the charting documents, so we will refer to him as Husband One. Keith told investigators that Sherry married Husband One, who was in the military, to get medical insurance because of a heart murmur issue. Sherry's mother told investigators that Sherry traveled all over the world with Husband One. Investigators located Husband One and interviewed him on November 14, 2016. He confirmed that he and Sherry were married in 2006, prior to his deployment overseas, and stated it was because Sherry needed health insurance due to complications related to regular egg donations. And dreamers, I have no idea what that means, and there's no further explanation. I actually don't even really care because it was probably a bunch of bullshit anyway. He stated that he and Sherry never lived together and did not travel together except for once when Sherry visited him in Japan. When he returned from deployment, Sherry told him she had found someone else and wanted a divorce to which he agreed. Sherry told husband one that her family abused her while growing up. After the divorce, husband one learned from mutual friends 
that Sherry had a long history of lying. Investigators also interviewed several of Sherry's friends. These friends described Sherry as being crazy and wild as a youth. The friends recounted that Sherry used to run away, and one described an incident in which Sherry ran away from home at age 16 to Southern California and stayed with friends. Multiple friends also stated that Sherry would make up lies, particularly about being the victim of abuse, especially when she was young. On November 24, 2016, at approximately 4.30 a.m., the California Highway Patrol responded to several 911 calls made regarding a woman, subsequently identified as Sherry, standing or running in the middle of Interstate 5. These included a truck driver who had stopped for Sherry and then called 911 to report the incident. A CHP officer found Sherry with the truck driver along Interstate 5 near Woodland, California, in Yolo County, approximately 146 miles or 234 kilometers south of the location of her disappearance. Sherry had a chain around her waist that one arm was bound to with additional bindings around her other wrist and around her ankles. Sherry was transported to Woodland Hospital where she underwent several physical examinations. She appeared to have lost a considerable amount of weight and her long blonde hair had been cut much shorter. She had been branded on her right shoulder, although the exact content of the brand was indistinguishable. Sherry's nose was swollen. She had bruises on her face, rashes on her left arm and left upper inner thigh, as well as other parts of her body, ligature marks on her wrists and ankles, burns on her left forearm, and bruising on her pelvis and on the front of both legs. Toxicology results did not show any significant trace of narcotics in Sherry's system at the time of her return, and a physical exam did not show evidence of sexual assault. While at Woodland Hospital, Sherry's clothing was collected for DNA sampling, including her sweatshirt, sweatpants, socks, and underwear. Sherry told investigators that this was her original underwear from the day of her disappearance. The clothing was submitted to the California Department of Justice Bureau of Forensic Services in their Reading Laboratory for processing. Mixtures of DNA consistent with Sherry and one male contributor, who was not Keith, were recovered from multiple cuttings taken from Sherry's underwear and one cutting taken from her sweatpants. The male contributor's DNA was uploaded to CODIS, where they were routinely searched against profiles from case evidence as well as individuals in the database. In 2020, a familial match to the male contributor was identified, which eventually led to James Reyes. In the notations at the bottom of this particular page in the criminal complaint, the note states, a different analysis also identified some sperm or partial sperm in the clothing. However, the male contributor DNA material analyzed may have come from sperm or another source. On November 24, 2016, the day Sherry was located, detectives attempted to interview her at Woodland Hospital and during an ambulance ride from Woodland Hospital to another facility. Sherry refused to speak to the detectives, so they gave the audio recorder to Keith, who asked her the questions. The detectives remained in the room and rode along in the ambulance. However, it was Keith who conducted the interview. It was recorded and transcribed in its entirety. Sherry provided the following information in the interview. 
Sherry stated that her abductors alluded to law enforcement being involved in her kidnapping, and therefore she did not want to speak to law enforcement. Sherry explained that her abductors read articles to her that stated Sherry had left voluntarily as opposed to being kidnapped, which Sherry denied. Further along in the interview, Sherry again said that her abductors told her that law enforcement was involved in her kidnapping. Sherry stated, She was laughing at me. Nobody believes you. Everyone thinks you ran away. No one believes you. Guess what? The buyer's a cop. They're never going to find you. Later in the same interviews, Sherry expressed concern because officers were writing everything down that she was saying, and she repeatedly stated that she did not want to talk to law enforcement. Sherry said that two Hispanic women abducted her, although one of the women brought her back. There was an older one and a younger one. They were Hispanic. They spoke Spanish a lot, Sherry stated. The Hispanic women always wore masks and short black leather gloves. She described the older woman as really mean and the younger one as seeming reluctantly involved. She described the younger abductor as smaller with curly, long brown hair who spoke more Spanish. She described the older woman as taller and fat, had straight, dark, or black hair with gray in it, and she had a raspy voice. The older abductor hit the younger abductor, although Sherry never saw this happen, she could hear it. She stated that her abductors always wore masks, sometimes different colored bandanas, sometimes lace masks. She had a hard time remembering details about her abductors, including a description of the clothing that they were wearing or the words on a hat that one of them was wearing. Sherry described the events that occurred at the time that she was abducted. A dark-colored SUV containing the two Hispanic women first drove past her, then backed up when they saw her dogging up the road. One of the women had on sunglasses, and Sherry believed she said, Can you help me? Sherry walked towards the woman who opened the door of the vehicle and showed Sherry that she had a gun, which Sherry described as a little revolver. The woman told Sherry to put her phone down. She recalled that the woman said something to the effect of, we don't want to kill you. Sherry put her phone down and got into the SUV. She described the SUV as having tinted windows and either no seats or one seat on the far side and a hump that went up. For several months and even years, Redding and the nearby community were on the lookout for two Hispanic women. Multiple tips were given to law enforcement by the community about suspicious-looking Hispanic women Investigators, including the FBI and the Shasta Sheriff's Department, searched for the vehicles that matched Sherry's description. Any vehicles that were presented to Sherry as examples of the possible SUV used in her abduction were never quite a match to what she recalled as having been the SUV driven by the two Hispanic women. Sherry said that she did not see where the women took her because they wrapped something over her face. Keith asked her if her kidnappers put a bag over her head right away. Sherry responded, I don't remember. I don't know. I think she may have tased me. The next thing I remember is all my clothes were gone. Although Sherry tried to stay awake during the drive, she kept falling asleep. Keith tried to get her to describe the road trip after she was abducted. He asked her how long the trip took, whether she felt changes in altitude, what she could describe about the vehicle she was in. Sherry responded, I don't remember a lot. I'm missing time. 
The car smelled really bad, like sewage. She stuck me with something. I kept falling asleep. Sherry said the older abductor liked to hit her and the younger one would yell at her in Spanish. Sherry described how she tried to manipulate her abductors to give her more information about why she was abducted, including offering to clean and cook for them. However, anytime the younger abductor spoke to Sherry, the older woman hit her. Sherry said the woman put her in a closet with a bucket with kitty litter in it for her to use as a toilet. She described the closet as containing shelves and a metal pole to which the woman hooked a cable and a chain to, with the other end of the chain hooked around her waist. There was enough length for Sherry to get onto the bed, but she could not reach the door. The chain was unmovable because it was bolted into the ceiling. Sherry described how when she did not listen to the women, they would lock her in the closet. Sherry stated that there were boards over the windows of the room she was kept in. She provided additional descriptions of her captivity location and her abductors. She stated they would play music loudly, that really annoying Mexican music, and they would watch TV. There was a fireplace. I could smell it. I could hear that sound, you know, when you move the handle to open the fireplace. It made a creaky sound. It was cold. It was always cold. And it seemed like it rained almost every night. Now, dreamers at this point, I was like, okay, so if they're playing that really annoying Mexican music loudly all the time, I don't know how she would hear any of these sounds, but okay. Keith asked if Sherry ever heard anything distinct that might lead investigators to our abductors, and she answered, I heard birds. I never heard anything else. They put the stereo right outside my door and played it super loud. Sherry described how the location was always cold and that her abductors would take away her blankets if she made any noise. Sherry told Keith that there was no sexual abuse while she was in captivity. She said her abductors fed her once a day, maybe rice or tortillas and some apples. However, if Sherry behaved, her abductors gave her additional food. She stated that many times her abductors gave her cream of wheat to eat and described how everything tasted horrible or was crap or leftover crap. Sherry was given a bottle of water. To give her meals, her abductors opened the door, put it in there, and slammed the door. When Sherry disappeared, she was wearing jogging clothes. When she returned, she was wearing gray sweatpants, a gray sweatshirt, and her original underwear. During the interview, Sherry could not explain what happened to her original clothes. She said she fell asleep during the car ride after she was abducted, and woke up in a room with different clothes on with no recollection of how her clothes came to be changed. Sherry stated, I didn't have any clothes. All I had left was my underwear, which she let me wash when I took a shower. Sherry also stated that her abductors cut her hair and put an adult diaper on her. She also said that she was branded after the first time she tried to escape. She stated, I tried to get out the first time and that's when they branded me. Sherry described how her abductors brought in a table, hit her, and tied her to it. When they branded her, her skin made a sizzling popping sound, and it was very painful. Later in the same interview, Sherry said that her abductors told her that her buyer wanted her branded because that's what he liked. In the notations at the bottom of this particular page in the charging documents, it is written that because of the description Sherry provided, 
Investigators believe she had been held in a mountainous location and they focused their efforts in areas of higher altitudes. And in all of her subsequent interviews, Sherry never again mentioned being put in an adult diaper. Sherry never heard the buyer's name because the abductors spoke mostly in Spanish and she did not understand more than a few Spanish words. These included discussions about medicine, traffic cameras, a delivery date, and gambling, as well as some Spanish insults directed at Sherry. When Sherry would take a shower, she was guarded by the younger abductor holding a gun. The abductors said they were not supposed to hurt her and also mentioned getting paid. Sherry could not remember much of the day that she was returned. She heard the two women arguing in Spanish. She believed the younger abductor was saying that Sherry needed medicine. She heard what she believed was a gunshot, and then she could hear the younger one leave. She said the younger abductor was gone for a long time, and Sherry was left alone in the house. She stated that she screamed and screamed until she fell asleep. Sherry explained, I listened so carefully, but it was all in Spanish. I heard the word gambling. Sherry was asleep when the younger abductor came to get her to leave. She said it happened really fast. And then Sherry was in the car and she believed a pillowcase was put over her head at some point, but did not recall when or how. She said that she tried hard to stay awake during the drive, but it was hard and she kept falling asleep. Sherry's abductor stopped the car and told Sherry to get out. She explained that when the younger abductor dropped her off, she clipped something off of Sherry's arm that allowed her to move her arm. Then the abductor sped off. Sherry's abductor was already far away by the time she was able to pull the pillowcase off of her head. She stated that she ran to a church and banged on the door, but nobody was there. She then ran to the freeway where she tried to flag down motorists. Eventually, a truck driver stopped and assisted her until CHP arrived. In a notation at the bottom of this page in the charging documents, it said that investigators initially believed Sherry's abduction was related to human trafficking based on the statements that she made regarding a buyer and her abductors discussing getting paid for having abducted her. On November 28th and 29th of 2016, Shasta Sheriff's detectives interviewed Sherry at her home and at the home of a family member. These interviews were recorded and transcribed in their entirety. During these interviews, Sherry described more details about her abduction. She refused to be alone with the detectives and insisted that Keith be present. Detectives explained to Sherry that even though their questions might seem trivial or dumb, there was a reason why they were asking those questions. Sherry explained that she understood because she watched a lot of crime shows on television. Shasta Sheriff's detectives asked Sherry to start from the beginning and describe the events that led up to her abduction. Sherry described the morning of her abduction as following her usual routine. She took her kids to daycare, cleaned up around the house, and had begun to wrap a Christmas present for Keith. At approximately 11 a.m., Sherry sent a text message to Keith asking him to come home for lunch. She joked with the detectives that Keith was embarrassed about the last text message that she sent to him before she disappeared, which he stated was along the lines of, Honey, would you please come home to have sex with your wife for lunch? Since Keith would not be able to come home for lunch, Sherry decided to go for a run. She explained that she recently had a breast augmentation procedure done 
and had just begun to heal enough to start jogging. Sherry wanted to train for a local 5K race and had been using a cell phone app to help her train. She said she almost always listened to her wedding song, Michael Buble's Everything, when she ran because it's a good pace keeper. The notation at the bottom of this page in the charging document said that when Keith found Sherry's phone, it was playing everything on repeat. Sherry described the route that she took and the people she saw along the route. As she approached the end of Sunset Drive, oops, I mean Sunrise Drive, I live on Sunset Road, she saw a dark-colored SUV with a long black window drive past her and then backed up after the occupants of the vehicle saw her. When the vehicle backed up, the woman in the passenger seat called out to Sherry to ask for help. Sherry explained that she had her phone in her right hand and her earbuds in, and she took the left earbud out to hear the woman. When Sherry approached the vehicle, the woman opened the door and Sherry saw that she had a small revolver in her hand. Sherry immediately ducked down and set her phone and earbuds on the ground and pulled some of her hair to leave with her phone and earbuds. She believed the woman said something like, we don't want to hurt you or we don't want to kill you. Sherry could not remember getting into the car. She remembered that she had a pillowcase over her head, but had no recollection of how the pillowcase came to be over her head. She stated that she woke up already in the vehicle with the pillowcase over her head, and it smelled of laundry detergent. Sherry stated that she felt nauseous and cold during the drive. She was lying in the back of the vehicle on the floor, and the road was windy, and her wrists hurt, and her hips were achy from the way that she was positioned. When a detective asked how long it took for Sherry to get achy hips when she laid on her side, Sherry estimated approximately 40 minutes based on the last TV show that she watched, which was a crime show called Blacklist. When asked further questions by detectives regarding the trip, Sherry could not describe the direction that the vehicle went after she got in and did not recall any stops during the trip. Sherry could not determine the length of the trip because she kept falling asleep. Her two abductors were women. She could hear them speaking, but they spoke in Spanish, which she could not understand. When a detective asked if she recalled any music during the trip, Sherry answered, yeah, mariachi music. She could not remember if she heard any commercials to suggest it was a radio or if it was some type of streaming music from an app. Sherry did not remember getting out of the vehicle. The first thing she remembered was waking up in a room. She had zip ties around her wrists and was no longer in the clothes that she had been jogging in. She was wearing sweatpants, a sweatshirt, and no socks. Detectives asked Sherry if these sweats were the same sweats that she had on when she was recovered. She stated, no, um, because they would change me. Detectives asked her how many times she thought she was changed, and she said, yeah, I think maybe one more time. The sweatshirt the top, and the top was changed more. When Sherry first woke up in the room, she tried to break the zip ties off of her wrists. She initially stated that her wrists were bound with zip ties behind her back and she couldn't break them. When she couldn't break the ties, she chewed on them until she could break them and cut her lip in the process. Detectives asked Sherry if her wrists were bound with one zip tie or two. Sherry responded one. She explained that she unsuccessfully tried to do one of these moves to chop her hands down and break the ties, 
but she eventually got them off by biting through them, which cut her lip. She said that any time she made noise, her captors would come running into the room. In the notations at the bottom of this page in the charging documents, it said that Sherry never clarified how she was able to get her zip-tied wrists from behind her back to the front of her body to be able to chew them off. Detectives asked her if there was ever a time that she made a noise and her abductors would not come running in. Sherry responded no, it was pretty much almost every time. Sherry stated later in the interview that her abductors often played loud music outside her room. When detectives asked her if she ever felt as though she was the only person in the house, she responded no and explained that she could feel movement in the house and the radio was often blaring loud music. She said that when the music wasn't playing, her abductors would hear her moving in the room and come rushing in the room to beat her. Detectives stated that Sherry mentioned in a previous interview that she heard the television and asked if she picked up on any commercials or anything that could help them identify the location of where she was held. She said no because she kept falling asleep and the television was in Spanish. She said, the sound of the radio was scary to me, but the TV was, I feel like I would just kind of rest more. Sherry never heard English on the radio or on the TV. She later stated that the TV wasn't on often, and if there had been English, she might not have heard it because the TV volume was low. Detectives asked Sherry about the sounds that she heard while she was in captivity. She said she listened for neighbors and cars, but she heard nothing. She then stated that she heard birds. The detectives asked Sherry what kinds of birds she heard and she stated, I know I heard a flicker because I know what a flicker sounds like. She said she heard the flicker from the window of the room in which she was being held. After Sherry was able to get the zip ties off of her wrist, she tried to open the door of the room but it was locked with a deadbolt. She stood on the bed to get to the window which was covered with two boards. Sherry stated that she yanked the fucker out of the wall super quick, referring to a board over the window, and broke her nail in the process. The noise she made while trying to get the boards off the window caused her two abductors to rush into the room. They struck Sherry with something, although she did not see the object that her abductors used to hit her with, and thought it could have been a taser. The next thing Sherry recalled was waking up in a lot of pain on her back, side, back of her head, and her neck was sore. She stated, that's all I remember from that experience. In her previous interview in the hospital and during the ambulance ride, Sherry stated that she was branded as a punishment for her first escape attempt when she pulled the board off the window. In those same interviews, Sherry also stated that her abductors told her that her buyer wanted her to be branded. Detectives tried to get clarification from her and said it was their understanding that it was after this first escape attempt that Sherry was branded. She explained no, the burn occurred during a later punishment. She stated that her abductors would hurt her when she would look up at them and any time she wasn't down on all fours with her head down. Detectives asked her how she came to understand that she had to drop down on the floor whenever her abductors came into the room, and she explained that her abductors often told her, don't look at me although they never said to get on all fours. Detectives continued to ask Cherry to explain when and how she was branded and why she had said it was punishment for her first escape. She explained that the branding was not a punishment trying to escape through the window, but for making too much noise. 
In the notes at the bottom of this page in the criminal complaint, it said that Sherry asked the detectives if her memory could have been disrupted by being tased, and the detectives explained that it could not. Sherry did not mention being tased during her abduction in her subsequent interviews. Sherry said that the branding was done all in one extended period and that it was the older abductor who did the actual branding. The younger abductor was to the right and behind her, and she believed it was the younger abductor who held the tools that they used to brand her with. Sherry could not see the tools her abductors used because they were behind her, but she described a clicking sound similar to, quote, the tinking of a metal pan, like if you were watching a show where they were removing a bullet from someone and dropping it into a pan. Sherry had a hard time remembering the details because she was in so much pain, both from the branding and also because of the weight on her body on her breast implants. Detectives asked Sherry if she was held down while she was branded. She responded, I wasn't necessarily held down. It was my arm like I couldn't, I couldn't pull up. She did not know what her abductors used for a heat source. She offered the possibility that it could have been a craft tool of some sort that was used to brand her, but she never saw it. Sherry postulated that the tool was smaller than a fire poker, but more like the size of a screwdriver as her abductor was close to her. In the notes at the bottom of this page of the criminal complaint, it stated that some months later, after her interview with detectives, Sherry sent a text message to an FBI agent working the investigation with a picture of a spoon. In the text message, Sherry stated she believed it was something similar to the spoon that was used to burn her arm. Sherry explained that after she tried to escape by ripping the board off the window, her abductors put a chain around her waist and tethered her to a cable attached to a pole in the closet. She could reach the bed, but not the door or the window. She tried to get the chain that was around her waist down over her hips, but her abductors caught her trying to do this and tightened the chain. It was a cable that was attached to a pole in the closet that made noise when she moved. She stated, Bucking pole is the only reason I was there. She tried to rip the pole out of the closet, which caused her hands to bleed and her fingernails to break when she tried to get the screws out. Sherry could not remember if the pole was in the closet before her escaped attempt. Detectives asked Sherry what she ate while she was in captivity. Her answers included the following, cream of wheat, but dry and barely mixed. Once she was given two apples, a weird cracker, scraps like fat off of a piece of meat or something, a piece of bread, and mostly tortillas and homemade gritty Spanish rice. Sherry described how she tried to exercise every day so she could keep a routine while in captivity. However, she had difficulty keeping track of the days because she did not sleep at regular times and generally got a lot of sleep. Detectives asked her how she could exercise without making noise that would alert her captors. She stated that she would pull the cable tight and tuck it between her legs. She told detectives that her abductors punished her for trying to escape by burning her forearm. She could not describe the object but believed they used something metal. Her abductors also provided her with a bucket, initially described as a trash can, for her to use as a toilet. She suggested to her abductors that they put kitty litter in the bucket, stating, quote, I tried to say, you know, if you line it with a bag, 
and put kitty litter in it, it will probably make your job a little easier. Her abductors took her advice and lined the bucket with kitty litter. Sherry was given a shower twice while she was being held. She cannot recall the approximate days that she was given showers because she was unable to tell the passage of time while she was in captivity. She described her first shower as hurting her because she had burns and open wounds. Sherry described the bathroom as having a high-pressure shower. The shower had light-colored speckled tile with a crack in it. There was no shower curtain. The shower head was chrome and inexpensive. The older abductor stood at the door while the younger abductor stood behind Sherry. Sherry did not look at her abductors because she was always told not to look at them. Sherry was provided with a body wash that smelled like coconut but no shampoo. She first stated that she washed her underwear in the shower but later stated that she kept her underwear on while she showered and only had a few seconds to wash herself. She was not provided with a towel to dry herself. She tried to hit the younger abductor with something, but couldn't remember what it was that she used to hit her abductor. She stated, quote, I tried to hit her with something in the bathroom. And then the next time I went into the bathroom, everything was gone. The mirror was gone. The towel rack was gone. In the notes at the bottom of this page of the complaint, it stated that in a subsequent interview with the FBI forensic interviewer, Sherry stated that the older abductor was walking back and forth while Sherry showered. She also described in detail how she fought with the younger abductor and cut her foot in the process. In the hospital and ambulance interviews, Sherry said the older abductor told her that her buyer was a cop while she was showering. Detectives asked Sherry how her hair came to be cut. She told detectives that she did not know what led to her hair being cut. She believed it was in response to her making noise because she was moving and the cable affixed to the pole in the closet clanged. Sherry stated that whenever she would make a noise, they would rush in. She had a hard time remembering that day and eventually recalled that she thought, quote, I was trying to make the bed. I want to say I was smoothing out a blanket and the cable made noise. Sherry did not feel it was time for the trash can to be emptied on that day. And the bigger one came into our room and Sherry dropped to the floor on all fours. She had her hair pulled back already in what she believed was her original hair tie. So I guess that answers our question from back in the episode, whether or not Sherry's hair was in a ponytail when she was jogging. Anyway, the two women said something in Spanish to each other, and the other one was outside the room. Sherry said she was hit on the shoulder and then yanked backwards, and she felt like it happened really fast. After her abductor cut her hair, she held it in her hand and stood over Sherry. The abductor told her, I'm going to send it to your mother. Sherry did not know what was used to cut her hair. Shasta County Sheriff's detectives asked Sherry about a blog post written by Sherry Greff. In the notations at the bottom of this page of the charging documents, it is written that Sherry's maiden name is Greff, and it's spelled G-R-A-E-F-F. I looked up the pronunciation, and what you hear is what you get. Many people in the Reading area speculated that Sherry wrote that blog post, which was titled, Keep Walking. The post appeared to have been written sometime in 2007. In the post, Sherry Greff detailed how she grew up in Shasta Lake, California, was a good athlete, 
but was picked on in high school by a group of quote-unquote Latinos. The Post stated, I used to come home in tears because I was getting suspended from school all the time for defending myself against Latinos. The chief problem was that I was drug-free, white, and proud of my blood and heritage. This really irked a group of Latino girls, which would constantly rag and attack me. The Post goes on to detail how Sherry Gruff fought the girls and how it took, quote, three full-size men to pull me off her. I broke her nose and split her eyebrow. The Post goes on to explain why it was titled Keep Walking because Sherry's father told her how proud he was of her after the fight with the other girls and that she kept walking with her shin split open as a result of a fight. Sherry concluded with the Post, Being white is more than just being aware of my skin, but standing behind skinheads who are always around in spirit as well and having pride for my country. Detectives told Sherry that it appeared the post was originally written on MySpace. When the detectives asked Sherry if she had a MySpace account, she stated that she did not remember. Sherry told detectives that prior to her kidnapping, she hired an attorney to try and have that post removed. Sherry said she believed someone else had written the post using the name Sherry Gruff and described it as awful. On March 2, 2017, Sherry conducted a forensic interview with an FBI forensic interviewer, which was recorded and transcribed in its entirety. This was the first interview conducted without Keith in the room. Sherry stated that she continued to fear law enforcement and told the interviewer, who is female, that she did not trust her. Sherry kept her head down and looked at the floor for the majority of the interview. At the beginning of the interview, the interviewer stated, I just ask everybody to tell me about the truth, okay? Sherry responded, okay. In the interview, Sherry provided the following information. On the day she was abducted, she went out for a jog. She was able to recall that she was wearing black leggings, her black and white checkered Under Armour tennis shoes, and a Nike jogging hoodie with thumb holes. She said that she left her house through the front door and ran down the driveway. She explained that she ran in the same direction every time and that she was training for a 5K race. She was able to describe the route that she took and the people that she saw along her way, ending with a right turn onto Sunrise Drive. She described her first encounter with her abductors. And Dreamers, I do want to point out that some of these statements are in quotation marks where the charging documents are pulling direct quotes from Sherry herself, but I'm not a huge fan of saying quote unquote, so I'm just going to read through. You probably be able to tell from some of the vernacular that she is saying some of the things that are being said as opposed to it being written by whoever was putting this document together. But anyway, she described her first encounter with her abductors. When she was about midway in the dirt road where Oregon Trail and Sunrise Drive ends, she saw a woman in a vehicle who was asking for help or signaling in some way. She took an earbud out and crossed the road to the left-hand side of the road, and the woman opened the door and pointed again at Sherry. Sherry squatted down in the grass, and the woman said something like, I don't want to hurt you. Sherry set her phone down and pulled her own hair out 
and squished it into the headphones and held her hands above her head. Sherry described the vehicle her abductors were in as a dark color, either like a dark, dark blue or black with a long window in the back. Sherry also said that there were four doors and the windows were tinted. She said that was all about she could remember. Upon further prompting, Sherry said that her abductor was wearing a hat and sunglasses and thought that the hat was a light colored like a gray baseball cap. Sherry said she knew her alleged abductors were Hispanic because their skin color was Hispanic colored, dark colored skin. And I probably don't have to tell you, dreamers, that that's a quote from Sherry. Hispanic colored. I mean, who says that, right? Sherry explained that when the abductor shouted at her, Sherry took one earbud out, but she could not remember which earbud she had taken out. She was out of breath because she was at the midpoint of her run and had already run a mile and had started slowing her pace to walk up towards the grass. Sherry described that the door of the SUV opened on the passenger side, and she saw a woman holding a gun and described the gun as a short revolver. Sherry squatted with her head down when she saw the gun. She explained the abductor told her to put her phone down and that they don't want to hurt her. Sherry said that she knew her family would find her phone and her intention was for her family to find her hair with her phone when they found it. Later in the interview, Sherry explained that there may have been times when her abductors were not covering their faces. She stated, I don't know. They could have been, but I didn't look up. I was really scared. And the more I was on the ground or kept my head down, the less they would hurt me. Sherry could not remember her abductor getting out of the car. The next thing she remembered was that she was in the back of the car. She could not remember how the door of the car was opened for her to get in or how she got into the car. She described how there was something over her head so she couldn't see and something bound her arms together behind her and her legs were bent behind her so she could move them a little, not a lot. Sherry said she was on the floor of the vehicle facing the rear. She could hear the two women talking, but they spoke in Spanish and she did not understand Spanish. The interviewer asked to tell her what the abductors were saying. Sherry responded, it's not English, it's Spanish, I don't speak Spanish. The interviewer asked what the tone of the voices was. Sherry responded, I don't know, they speak really fast, I would just say that it was a normal volume. Sherry could not see anything inside of the vehicle or outside of the windows because she had something over her head. She said that as they were driving, she could feel turns and was nauseous. She kept falling asleep, but it was like a yucky kind of a sleep. The next thing Sherry remembered was waking up in a room. Sherry described waking up in a room on a bed. The bed was a plain mattress on the floor underneath a window. Her body was across the mattress with her head towards the window and her feet hanging off the edge of the mattress. Sherry stated that her legs were no longer bound but she had zip ties around her wrists. The room had a dresser in it along with the mattress, but nothing else. The next thing Sherry remembered was breaking the zip ties off her wrists. There's zip ties together on my wrists. That's what this little scar is from. Arms are in front. 
The interviewer noted that Sherry's zip-tied arms moved from being behind her to in front of her, but Sherry could not explain how this happened. She went on to explain that she and her husband had watched a YouTube video about how to break zip ties, and she tried the maneuver, but it didn't work. Instead, she just bit them and chewed the hell out of them, and I broke them. The interviewer asked Sherry about the clothing that she had on when she woke up in the room. Sherry said that she was wearing a plain t-shirt and her original underwear, no socks and no bra. Sherry did not know what happened to her original clothing. She said that after she got the zip tie off, she stood on the bed and jumped up to pull the board off the window, but there were boards on the outside so she could not see outside. She could not say whether the window could open. She was only able to get one board off before her abductors came into the room. When they came into the room after she got that board off, she was pulled down from behind and hit very hard. Sherry described how she felt a burning feeling from her hair being pulled. She further described that she heard her abductors yelling as they came into the room. She couldn't remember where her body landed after they pulled her down, and she didn't see anything because all she saw was stars. The very next thing Sherry remembered is that she woke up in the room, the dresser was gone, and the mattress was now where the dresser had been before, and she had a chain around her waist. Sherry said that she did not think about who would have abducted her and why. Instead, she was thinking about how she was going to get away. The next thing that happened after she woke up with a chain around her waist is that the door opened and a plate with food and a plastic bottle of water was put into the room and then the door shut. Sherry described her abductors. The smaller one had dark curly hair that's kind of short, so curly that if she didn't put product in it, it would probably be really frizzy. She was wearing brown shoes that looked like guest knockoffs and blue jeans. She had pierced ears and wore those big hoop earrings and had thin, almost drawn-in eyebrows. The bigger abductor had dark eyes, really thick eyebrows, and dark hair with strands of gray. And dreamers, if you're thinking what I'm thinking, then that's a lot of detail for somebody who was never allowed to look at these people. It just kind of sounds like the things, like the stereotypical things that she might have disliked about these so-called Latinos that she always had troubles with in high school. Sherry went on to describe the food that she was given, which was mostly grits or cream of wheat on a cheap paper plate with ridges on it. She was not provided with silverware, so she folded the plate and shoveled the food into her mouth. She got lots of scraps, sometimes bread, crackers, an apple, leftovers from like meat, some rice, black beans, and chunks of bread. The next thing Sherry remembered was going to sleep. Sherry said she was asleep for a very long time, waking every once in a while and feeling sick and dizzy. Sherry said the first time her clothes were changed was after her first shower and went on to describe events that occurred when she was given her first shower. Sherry explained that she was sitting on the bed in the room when her abductors came in to take her to the shower. They hit her on the head and hip, but she did not know what they hit her with. The bigger one had her hair pulled back and a bandana around her face, and the littler one had on a lacy mask. The women had their guns and told Sherry to not struggle or to not move. 
Sherry later explained that the little one held a handgun that wasn't a revolver and that the bigger one had a different gun that she always had, either in her hand or in her pants. The abductors unlocked the chain and brought her around the corner to a bathroom with the water running. The little one stood at the door while the bigger one went back and forth in and out of the room. Sherry took her clothes off except for her underwear and used a coconut scented body wash that the bigger one threw at her to wash herself and her clothes. Sherry described the bathroom as being a small bathroom with a sink on the left, a towel rack on the right, and a combined shower with a tub with a cheap metal spigot, gray floor tiles, and brown wall tiles, and a crack in the shower tile. Sherry said that she tried to get her abductors to talk to her while she was in the shower, and she asked her abductors, where am I, why am I here, but they did not respond to her. The little one had a really thick accent and said, we sell you. The bigger one told Sherry, your buyer is a cop. Then when the abductors were talking to each other, the big one said something to the little one and she turned her body and lowered her gun, at which point Sherry jumped on her and shoved her face on the toilet. Sherry explained that it was slippery and she slipped and cut her foot on the stupid side of the cabinet. Then the big one came in and dragged her back into the bedroom by her hair and shoved a bitter liquid down Sherry's throat until she was choking and gagging. Sherry explained that then her abductors hit her, locked her back up and left the room. Sherry put on the clothes that had been laid out on the bed and laid her underwear out to dry. Sherry described the closet, chain and pole. There's two doors that opened outward, two shelves, and a really weird metal pole that looked like a large screw that went through both shelves, which was what the cable was attached to. Sherry said she liked being in the closet because it was warm, and when the closet doors were shut, the chain hooked on the pole didn't make any noise that would alert her abductors, so she was free to move and exercise. Sherry explained that although she was sore and hurt all the time, she needed to stay alert and she wanted to stay strong so she would do yoga and move and stretch her legs. Also, if she was outside the closet, she would tuck the cable under her thigh and lift her other leg. She also described how while she was in the closet, she took a screw and was trying to chip away at the drywall. She thought that if she could use the screw to chip at the drywall, she might be able to escape. Sherry described how her abductor's behavior changed during the time that she was in captivity. She said the little one changed a lot, but the big one was always mean and cruel. Sherry said the little one would pull the big one off of her sometimes when the big one was beating her, but the big one would hit the little one. Sherry said that she did not know Spanish, but she felt like the little one was protective. Sherry suggested that the little one said, she lined the trash can with a plastic bag and put kitty litter in it and said that the little one did what she suggested. When the interviewer asked Sherry if it was a bucket or a trash can, Sherry responded, it's a bucket trash can. I mean, it's a bathroom. It's like a little cylindrical latrine. It was gray and it had ridges on the outside. A bucket trash can. I wonder if they sell those at Ikea. Sherry described what happened when she was branded on her back. 
She said the women brought a table into her room while she was on the bed. She described the table as heavy, and it made a loud thunk when the woman set it down. The table was short to the ground and had a marble design, but the marble design was peeling, so obviously it was fake because I could see the brown wood underneath the marble-like laminate. The woman put Sherry on the table with the chain still around her waist and the cable was attached. Her wrists were wrapped around the front of the table as if hugging it and her legs were not all the way on the table and her hands and legs were tied to the table. Sherry believed it was both of the women who put her on the table. She was wearing a t-shirt and one of the women, she wasn't sure which one, cut the t-shirt up the back. The two women were talking to each other in Spanish and Sherry looked away and closed her eyes. The little one was sitting to Sherry's right and slightly behind her while the big one left the room and then came back with something and set it down. Sherry was putting all of her weight on her chest, which hurt because of her breast implants. Sherry said she was dizzy and nauseous. She kept moving and was hit every time she moved. Sherry said that the branding tool made this awful popping noise when it was put to her skin. Sherry said it was hard to describe the feeling she felt when she was being branded. She was scared of saying anything and she did not want to make any noise. She could not turn her head to see what the women used to brand her and she kept her eyes closed. Once the women were finished branding her, Sherry said, she untied me, the little one, and then kicked me off the table. The little one dragged the table out, the big one stood there and then she walked out. Sherry still had her shirt on, but it was cut up the back. She fell asleep, and when she woke up, there was another t-shirt for her to put on, and the one that had been cut was gone. Sherry said her hair was cut towards the beginning of her captivity. She was making noise, and the big one came in and grabbed her hair and pulled her hair back. The little one stood at the door. The big one told Sherry, they're not looking for you. They're not going to find you. And told Sherry she was going to send her hair to Sherry's mom. She did not know what was used to cut her hair. She explained that she felt really bad and reasoned that her abductors didn't know her because otherwise they wouldn't send my hair to my mother. They would send it to my husband. In Sherry's prior interviews with law enforcement, she discussed that her abductors read her articles and told her that nobody believed her and that law enforcement was involved in her abduction. When asked about this, Sherry stated that her abductors did not read her any articles or show her any news coverage, but instead told her while cutting her hair, no one's going to find you, they don't believe you, they think you just ran away, the police are not looking for you. When asked if she was worried that nobody was going to believe her, Sherry responded, I was worried that no one was going to find me. Sherry described what happened on the day of her return. She was in her room and was on the bed, wearing sweatpants, a sweatshirt, her original underwear and socks. And then she heard a gunshot and got really scared, stating, I think I peed my pants, actually. Sherry said she got really scared and stayed in the closet. She heard shuffling and the sound of keys being grabbed off of a table, but nothing else. And then she heard the music. She said she yanked on things and screamed until she fell asleep in the closet. Then the little one came in and put food in the room. Sherry ate the food and then felt dizzy and nauseous and yucky. 
Sherry thought she felt bad because she wasn't eating or drinking much. The dizziness and nausea would happen whenever she would either sit up or stand. The next thing Sherry remembered was that she fell asleep. The little one came back into Sherry's room and woke her up by hitting her in the face. Sherry didn't know what she was hit with, but her nose was bleeding, although it wasn't that much. The woman walked out of the room and the door was still open. There were clothes on the bed and it seemed like she was instructing her, so Sherry put the clothes on. The woman hit her again, put something on her head, and unlocked the cable. Sherry started walking and stubbed her toe. Sherry did not remember if there were any restraints on her hands or feet. She was placed in a vehicle. She did not know if it was the same vehicle or a different one from the day of her abduction because she could not see the vehicle due to the covering on her head. She described the vehicle as smelling different, that it smelled like sewage and dirt. And that, dreamers, doesn't really sound different to me because she said the first time that it smelled like sewage because apparently that's what she thinks Hispanic people drive around in vehicles that smell like sewage, apparently. That is so stupid and ridiculous. Who has a car that smells like sewage on the inside? How does that even happen? These details just make her whole story sound fake. But anyway... Sherry was on the floor of the vehicle with her hands behind her, bound with something that was metal and very sharp. Sherry did not hear any voices in the car, only the radio. She kept trying to count the songs, but then she fell asleep. Then she felt the car stop, and she started crying. The little one instructed Sherry out. Sherry remembered hearing three clipping sounds, and the restraints on her wrists and ankles were cut. Sherry fell out of the car and the car drove away. Sherry pulled off whatever was over her head and ran after the car. She didn't know why she ran after the car, but explained, I didn't want her to leave me. Sherry could not provide any details of where she was dropped off in relation to where she was found. Only that it was an agricultural road. The interviewer asked Sherry if she had any questions and Sherry asked, did they figure out what it says on my back, referencing the branding? The interviewer asked Sherry if she looked at it to see what it said, and Sherry responded, eh, it's really hard to see. I have to look at a picture of it. The interviewer asked Sherry what she thought it said, and she responded, I think it says Exodus, but I can't read the numbers. The interviewer asked Sherry if she had any idea what the meaning might be for the brand, and Sherry responded, no, I read it, but it's a really confusing Bible passage. It's like a really weird part of the Bible. It doesn't make any sense. On March 31st, 2017, Keith contacted the FBI and provided the following information. Sherry told Keith that the room that she was kept in had paneling similar to beadboard on the bottom half of the wall and drywall on the top half. I didn't know what b-board was, but I looked it up and it's a style of wood paneling. Like it might be installed on half the wall with kind of a decorative horizontal transition border, maybe three or four feet from the floor. And then the top half of the wall is just drywall that's been texturized and painted. Anyway, Keith said Cherry described the carpet as orange colored and shaggy. Keith provided photos 
of the drawings that he made with Sherry of the room and the devices used to chain Sherry to a pole in the closet in the room. On June 5, 2017, Keith contacted the FBI and provided the following information. Keith and Sherry recently traveled north to Ashland and Medford, Oregon. They went to a Dick's sporting goods store, and while in the gun section of the store, Sherry was fine until she saw the display of revolvers. When she saw the revolvers, she shut down and got scared. Sherry pointed to a black Ruger revolver and said, that's what it looked like. Keith also informed the FBI that Sherry wanted to sit down with a sketch artist. Keith also stated that Sherry was seeing a plastic surgeon to have the burns on her arm repaired with some laser treatments. During one of the treatments, Sherry smelled the burned hair from the laser and shut down, and the treatment had to be stopped. On June 8, 2017, Sherry met with FBI agents to review a photo array. In that meeting, Sherry told the agents that the older abductor had bushy, thick eyebrows and the younger woman had curly hair and thin eyebrows that had been over-tweezed. Neither woman had a widow's peak. On June 22, 2017, Sherry met with an FBI sketch artist to create renderings of the two Hispanic females who abducted her. During that meeting, Sherry described the older woman as approximately two to three inches taller than Sherry, with long, smooth hair that she kept either in a braid or a ponytail that would hit Sherry in the head whenever the woman leaned over her. She also said that the older woman had fat hands and fingers, with smooth skin, and had coffee breath all the time, and smelled like she drank sweetened coffee. Sherry described the younger female having coarse, curly hair with no bangs. She said the younger female was shorter with the muscular build and wider in the hip area. Not thin, but not overweight. Sherry told the FBI sketch artist that the younger abductor wore large hoop earrings and had hairy arms. Both females were clean and smelled of detergent. Sherry provided the sketch artist with reference photos she had printed from the internet to show the skin condition of the older abductor and to provide a reference of facial features and mask placement for both abductors. Sherry told the FBI sketch artist that both abductors wore masks when they interacted with her. As such, the sketch artist left the bottom half of the abductor's faces undrawn and provided Sherry with mask examples to use in the sketches. On June 27, 2017, the FBI sketch artist sent sample mask images and draft copies of the sketches of the two Hispanic women with masks for Sherry's approval. Based on Sherry's suggestions, second drafts of the sketches of the two Hispanic women were sent on July 3, 2017. On July 18, 2017, the FBI sketch artist received confirmation of Sherry's approval of the two sketches. On September 22, 2017, the sketches were finalized and submitted to be used in FBI wanted posters that were disseminated worldwide in the search effort for Sherry's abductors. On August 14, 2017, Keith contacted FBI agents and provided the following information. Keith and Sherry were recently talking about the events that occurred during Sherry's captivity. Sherry described being bound to a black coffee table with a granite veneer or laminate top that was cracked in the top right corner. Sherry was bound, lying face down on top of the table, and then was branded. Keith did a Google image search and found a table that Sherry said was like the table that she was on. Keith provided this picture to FBI agents. 
On October 26, 2017, Keith and Cherry met with FBI agents. Based on tips received by the FBI following the release of the sketches, FBI agents showed Sherry mugshots of two different women and five Facebook photos of a third woman. Sherry did not identify the women in the two mugshots, though Sherry could not positively identify the third woman from the Facebook photos. She stated that the woman's eyebrows were like the ones of the younger female captor. Sherry provided additional information regarding her captivity. In the beginning, while Sherry was taking her first shower, Sherry begged the younger woman to let her go and the older woman walked past holding something in her hands and making a tisk-tisk or a hissing sound at Sherry. The young woman said, we sell you, buyer is cop. Sherry stated that this was the only time a cop was mentioned. While Sherry was using the shower, she heard the older woman use a Spanish word, matate, which is a grain grounding stone used to process grains and seeds. And in the notations at the bottom of this page of the complaint, it said in her previous interviews with FBI agents, Sherry stated that the older one had stated that the buyer was a cop. And this time she said it was the younger one. During that first shower, Sherry fought with the younger woman. She cut herself on something in the bathroom and had lots of cuts at that time. Also during the fight, Sherry saw a pointy canine through the younger woman's mask. When Sherry was tied to the coffee table and being branded, she heard the following Spanish words being spoken by the older woman, and please excuse my Spanish. Deja, puta, mira, and friolenta. The words, let, bitch, look, chili. Those were what I got from Google Translate. If anybody else has any other translations, do share. The older woman said the word friolenta directly to Sherry in a derogatory manner, showing disgust towards her, but the younger female did not show disgust. During the branding, Sherry yelled out and was hit. Earlier, I think she said that she couldn't say or do anything, right? Am I right? I'm going to go and look that up. Hold on. Yeah, I scrolled back up to the section with the branding. She was dizzy and nauseous. She kept moving and was hit every time she moved. Sherry said that the branding tool made this awful popping noise when it was put to her skin. It was hard to describe the feeling when she was being branded. She was scared of saying anything and she didn't want to make any noise. Yeah, okay. I'm not losing my mind here. And now she's saying during the branding, Sherry yelled out and was hit. The older female was touching Sherry's body with her fingers. Additionally, Sherry discussed her November 2016 text conversation with Man One, who was the man from Michigan, about meeting together and explained that the text regarding having an additional plan was about making another dinner plan with her friend so Sherry could get out of the house and meet with Man One without suspicion from Keith. On November 8, 2017, Sherry met with FBI agents to review a photo array of possible subjects. Sherry did not positively identify any of the individuals in the photos, but did provide additional information. She further described the younger captor as having defined curls with lots of product that sometimes looked crunchy and rarely lost definition, as well as a wispy hairline. Sherry found three pictures from the internet that looked similar to the young woman's hair and hairline and provided these pictures to the agents. 
Sherry stated that certain SUV models, Tahoes and Suburbans, made her stomach hurt and described the vehicle in which she was abducted as having a rear door that lifted like a hatchback or SUV. Keith showed agents a photo of Sherry's foot taken at the hospital the day that she was found, which he asserted showed a mark on the side of her right foot, corroborating her recollection regarding the fight that she had with the younger captor in the bathroom. Sherry stated she stepped onto the edge of the tub and flung herself towards the younger captor. Sherry scraped her foot on the bottom of the sink along the baseboard of the vanity. The scrape bled a little, but was not dripping. Sherry admitted that she exaggerated the incident in an earlier interview and apologized that she pumped up the description. Sherry stated that she did not see the photo Keith showed the agents before describing the injury to him, which prompted him to go back and look at the photos of Sherry's injuries that he received from the sheriff's office. On March 18, 2018, Sherry contacted FBI agents and stated that during a session with her therapist, she recalled additional information. She came to believe that the burns on her arms were made with a heated up kitchen utensil, such as the back end of a butter knife or a spoon. Sherry had some silverware at home that matched the scars on her arms. Sherry was asked to provide pictures, but could not at the time, as she and her husband were preparing to take a trip to a hunting cabin in Plantina, California, where there would be no cell reception. On March 21, 2018, Sherry sent FBI agents a text with a photo of a spoon. In the text message, Sherry stated, I don't recall seeing anything other than the shine, but now that we look closer, you can see the first spot where she touched it to my skin and I jerked away and it appears to be drag marks. The second, when I flinched and the deep mark is when she held my arm and pressed it in there and held it there. On May 7, 2018, Keith contacted FBI agents and stated that during a therapy session, Sherry remembered that one of the women holding Sherry captive tried to pour a sticky substance down her mouth. Sherry wiped her mouth off with her underwear, leaving a sticky substance on the underwear and then fell asleep. So now in the timeline, the charging documents skip ahead about a year and a half. On September 26, 2019, Sheriff's Detective submitted a letter to the California Department of Justice Bureau of Forensic Services requesting a familial DNA search for the unknown male DNA contributor identified on Sherry's underwear. Remember, in the meantime, in between the last time that they spoke to Sherry back on May of 2018, what had just happened was the arrest of the Golden State Killer that happened in April of 2018. So now, you know, they're starting to think we could start identifying this DNA using these online genealogical websites, right? So they put in their request on March 19th, 2020, the California Department of Justice Familiar Search Committee voted to release a familial search result to provide analytical assistance in an effort to identify the unknown male DNA. On March 19, 2020, the Bureau of Forensic Services Reading Lab received an email identifying person two as a potential relative of the unknown male DNA contributor identified on Sherry's clothing. So in the charging documents, person one was the director of the youth program, 
that Sherry belonged to back in 2000 and 2001 ish, where she met the former boyfriend referred to as Man 2. I called Person 1 the program director, and I'm going to refer to Person 2, who they have identified as being related to the DNA contributor. Person 2 was found to have two living biological sons, and one of them was a person they referred to in the documents as ex-boyfriend, and we know his name is James Reyes. His was the unknown male DNA found on Sherry's underwear. An investigation into James Reyes revealed that he was briefly associated with an address owned by Sherry's parents. Additionally, the investigation revealed that James Reyes and Sherry were joint subscribers to an AOL email account and also that James and Sherry had conducted historical financial transactions together. In July of 2020, FBI special agents reviewed James's brother's social media pages and identified a table similar in appearance to the table Sherry described to law enforcement back in August of 2017 as the table that her abductors strapped her to and branded her on. On June 9, 2020, FBI special agents collected discarded items from the trash outside of James Reyes' residence in Costa Mesa, California, including a discarded Honest Honey green tea bottle. These items were provided to the Bureau of Forensic Services for analysis. On July 10, 2020, it was concluded that the DNA obtained from the mouth area of the green tea bottle matched the unknown DNA collected from Sherry's clothing. On August 10, 2020, investigators interviewed James Reyes, and he told them the following. He admitted to investigators that he helped Sherry run away. He explained that Sherry was a good friend, and she asked him for help. Sherry told him that her husband was beating and raping her, and she was trying to escape. Sherry told him that she had filed police reports, but the police were not doing anything to stop her husband's abuse. James said that she had something planned, and he was trying to help her get away from Keith and to be a good friend. In the notations at the bottom of this page and the charging documents, it states, The Shasta County Sheriff's Office did not have any domestic violence reports filed by Sherry against Keith. James and Sherry had known each other since they were 13 or 14 years old and had a long history together as friends. The two also had a romantic relationship and had previously been engaged. James told investigators that Sherry reached out to him out of the blue and that they had not spoken in a long time because she had gotten married and had kids. James estimated that sometime in 2015, he was cleaning his house and came across a box of old photos and personal items that belonged to Sherry from when they were in a relationship together. James sent the box of Sherry's personal items to her parents and then called them to let them know the box was coming. He did not know if his sending Sherry's personal items back to her parents was what prompted her to reach out to him. When Sherry first called James, he was at work. She told him she had a plan to run away with him and that she had been saving some of her cash and planned to send some money to him for her to have when she was with him. James stated she kind of laid out the situation. She didn't get into a lot of detail and the call was brief because James was at work. Sherry told James to get a prepaid phone and to communicate with her. Initially, Sherry and James called each other on their regular phones, but eventually they began to communicate on prepaid phones that were not attributable to either of them. Sherry devised a plan for James to drive to Reading and he agreed. 
James admitted to investigators that there could have been a better plan and said the planning process was not very long. Investigators asked James if there were any females involved in helping Sherry escape and he said no. Investigators asked him if he had seen the sketches of the women who allegedly abducted Sherry and he responded, yeah, yeah, no, I don't know any Mexican girls. James initially could not recall how he knew where to pick up Sherry. Later in the interview, he recalled that Sherry sent him a care package that included the location where she wanted him to pick her up. In the summer of 2016, James and Sherry had been talking and he let her know he was in the hospital. She sent a care package to his home after he had been home from the hospital for a while. Included in the care package was a piece of paper with the location where she wanted him to pick her up. James thought he must have Googled the location to get an idea of where to go. James asked a good friend, and this person is identified in the documents as person three, but I'm going to call him James's good friend, to rent a car for him to use, but did not explain why he needed the car to his good friend. On October 31st, 2016, the good friend rented a dark-colored Dodge Challenger for James. James did not specify what kind of car his good friend should rent, but did not expect his friend to rent a sports car. In the notations at the bottom of this page of the documents, it states, Documents obtained during the investigation confirmed that the good friend rented a silver Dodge Challenger from Fox Rent-A-Car on October 31, 2016 at approximately 6.37 p.m. The rental car was returned on November 4, 2016 at approximately 10 a.m. James told investigators that on November 2, 2016, he got up early in the morning and drove the rented Dodge Challenger from Southern California to Redding, California. When James got to Redding, he went to a Trader Joe's and bought some stuff and he ate breakfast. He stopped at a Starbucks and waited to hear from Sherry about where he should drive to meet her. James believed Sherry communicated with him on his prepaid phone using a prepaid phone that she already had. Sherry sent him a text message detailing where she wanted him to pick her up at. He recalled that he picked her up on a street called Old Something, just outside of Reading, and that would be Old Oregon Trail. James described that as he was driving up the road, Sherry was walking down the road. He pulled up the Sherry and opened up the passenger side of the door and folded the front seat down so Sherry could get into the back seat. She was wearing athletic clothing when he picked her up. She had been jogging and was sweaty. Sherry got into the vehicle and laid down in the back seat. James drove straight back to Southern California, stopping only a few times for gas and coffee. Sherry stayed in the back seat of the vehicle the entire length of the trip. They did not talk much during their drive back down to Costa Mesa. James recalled that Sherry was worried about her kids and was having a hard time with that, but otherwise the ride was fairly quiet. He recalled that Sherry took a nap and slept for most of the drive. During the period of her disappearance, Sherry never left James's residence. She asked him to pick up clothes for her to wear. He purchased sweats, socks, and t-shirts from Target, TJ Maxx, or Ross, wherever he was closest to on his way home from work. He said he did not buy much clothing for Sherry and bought grays, darks, basics, whatever they had. James continued to go to work every day while Sherry stayed at the residence. She slept on a couch in the living room, and Sherry had her own room. He lived in a two-bedroom apartment, and Sherry selected the room she wanted to stay in. 
He believed she purposefully selected the room with less exposure. James told investigators that it might sound bland, but they really did just talk, hang out, and eat food, but they didn't go anywhere. Sherry cleaned the house a couple of times and did whatever she thought she needed and that she was feeling for herself, you know, she was in her own thing. She had a lot of private time and just wanted to be in the room with the door shut. James was not there most of the time. The closet of the room James described as Sherry's room looked very similar to the closet she described in her previous interviews with law enforcement and included a poll as described by her. In the notation at the bottom of this page of the charging documents, it stated, When Sherry was interviewed on November 28, 2016, and that would be four days after she reappeared, Sherry stated, The cable was affixed to the pole that went into the ceiling and described the pole as a big screw. This matched the pole in the closet of the room Sherry stayed in at James's residence. During their interview with James, investigators asked him if Sherry did anything with the window in the room she stayed in. He told him that there were boards over the window so she couldn't see. There was no light coming in and she wanted it to be dark. He said that he had put boards over the window because she asked him to and stated, she asked me if there was a way to seal up the window. He described the wood that he used to cover the window as three sheets of particle board and press board. He showed investigators that there was no other reason to board up the window because no neighbors or people from the outside could see into the window. Sherry had been staying with him for a couple of days when she asked him to put boards over the window. James believed Sherry was purposefully trying to lose weight while she was staying with him. She ate whatever he bought but would eat small portions. He stated, she was not eating as much as she would. She would just minimize what she was eating. Both of them made food for them to eat, but Sherry, for example, would eat half of banana instead of a whole banana. James said that Sherry was already tiny, but she wanted to lose weight, and he did not question her on it. Investigators asked James what happened with Sherry's hair. He told him that she chopped that. He came home from work one day, and Sherry had cut her hair. He could not remember what Sherry did with the hair that she cut off, and he did not know if she had thrown it in the trash. He recalled that Sherry cut her hair within a few days of coming to stay with him. He believed that cutting her hair was one of the first things that she did while she was staying with him. James knew about the injuries Sherry had when she was discovered. He explained that she created the injuries while she was staying with him, including hitting herself to create bruises and burning herself on the arms. He said that he helped her to create some of the injuries, although he never laid his hands on her directly. For example, she told him to bank a hockey puck off my leg, so he shot a hockey puck off of her leg lightly. James did not help Sherry burn her arm and said that was self-inflicted. I didn't burn anything on her arm there. James admitted to investigators that he was confused by Sherry injuring herself and stated, there's not too many people that come up and say, hurt me. I am not physical with women ever. I mean, I just don't. Sherry did not start creating injuries on herself until close to the time that she was deciding to leave James and go back home. He believed Sherry had initially planned to stay with him for a longer period of time. Remember, dreamers, none of this information was ever made public, so there is no other way that James would know or have this information except for the fact that he was there. James described to investigators 
how Sherry asked him to brand her. She told him to purchase a wood-burning tool from Hobby Lobby. The nearest one was in Huntington Beach. So he drove to the Hobby Lobby in Huntington Beach and bought the tool. By this time, Sherry was aware of the news stories about her disappearance and did not want people to see her. He clarified that he and Sherry did not watch TV because he did not have one at the time, but Sherry had a cell phone that she used to read the news. She did not want to go with him to the Hobby Lobby because she never left the house during the time that she stayed with him. James told investigators that he used cash to purchase the wood-burning tool. He described the tool as a small plug-in tool similar in size to an electric toothbrush. The letters snapped into the top of it and the rod heated up like a soldering iron. James believed that the letters were made of brass. When he returned with the wood-burning tool, he and Sherry sat on the floor next to an electrical outlet so that they could plug the tool into the outlet. He sat behind Sherry and she pulled her shirt up so that he could use the tool to make the brand. She told him the phrase that she wanted burned onto her skin. He couldn't remember the phrase, but it had a meaning to Sherry. He recalled that he branded her right shoulder using the wood-burning tool. He recalled that it was the right shoulder because he was left-handed and he used his right hand to hold her right arm and rested his left hand on her back as to hold the tool steady. He said that he was nervous and wanted to hold steady while doing the brand because the tool was so hot that it glowed red. James wanted to do a good job and make the brand straight, but knew it must be painful and didn't want to hold the hot brand on her skin for too long. He worried that the branded area would get infected, but Sherry never really complained about the pain. He believed he purchased some burn cream for her to use on her brand and on her burn wounds. When asked whether she took her shirt off for the branding, he explained that she did, but that she was generally not walking around naked, although he knew about her breast implants and that she was having issues with them. James recalled that Sherry asked him to put the brand on her within the first week that she was with him. He had wanted to keep the wood-burning tool and thought that he might use it to work on wood or something, but Sherry told him to throw it away and he did. In the notations at the bottom of this page in the charging documents, it stated, James later went with investigators to the Hobby Lobby and showed them the type of tool that he purchased and the lettering used with the tool. The lettering appeared to match the letters that were branded on Sherry's right shoulder when she was discovered. James described how Sherry got some type of rash at one point on her arms. He did not know what to do, so he went to the store and bought all the different creams for rashes. Sherry had given him a list and he just picked up whatever and grabbed some of the extra ones. Sherry wanted to scrub the stains out of James's carpet and asked him to go to Walmart to buy cleaning supplies. Sherry had been scrubbing the floor and ended up having hives on her arms. He did not know what caused the rash or what she was allergic to. He believed she got the rash pretty early on when she was staying with him. Even though he bought ointment for her to use, she continued to have the rash the rest of the time that she stayed with him. James explained that he and Sherry had been in a previous romantic relationship that ended approximately in 2006. He said that he wasn't sure of Sherry's intentions during her stay with him, but he believed that they might end up in a romantic relationship again. James stated that he did not know how long Sherry planned to be away from her family or what her final plan was and whether or not that included them getting back together. He said during their prior relationship that they were in love at a time, 
but that it was young love. He stated that he and Sherry did not have sex while she stayed with him and that none of this was a sexual thing. Shortly before Thanksgiving of 2016, Sherry asked James to take her back to Reading. She said that she missed her children and wanted to go home. She told him, I'm ready to go. He asked his same good friend that rented the car the first time to rent a car for him again, which James used to drive Sherry back home. He believed he and Sherry left late in the evening the day before Thanksgiving or very early in the morning on Thanksgiving Day and drove straight through without stopping towards Reading. Sherry stayed in the back seat of the rental car the entire length of the trip, which took approximately seven hours. James said that he did not drop Sherry off on the side of Interstate 5, but on a road off the freeway. He described the road as a country road alongside an orchard. The road was dark with no lights and was pretty barren in that area. He drove back to Orange County and attended Thanksgiving dinner at his aunt's house in San Pedro at approximately 11 or 12 noon. He returned the rental car the next day. In the notations at the bottom of this page of the charging documents, it states, Documents obtained during the investigation confirm that James's good friend rented a white Mitsubishi Outlander from Enterprise Car Rental on November 23, 2016 at approximately 8.02 a.m. The rental car was returned on November 25, 2016 at approximately 7 a.m. The rental car had been driven approximately 927 miles or almost 1,500 kilometers during the period that it was rented. This is just over the approximate round-trip distance between James's residence and Woodland, California, where Sherry was found. James said that Sherry had stuff in a bag with her when they drove back to Reading. She used these items to bind her own wrists and ankles, including a chain that he had purchased for her. Additionally, James stated that Sherry brought a prepaid phone with her, which she tossed out of the car as they drove back to Reading. He described the phone that she brought with her as a black smartphone. Before Sherry left his residence, she bagged up anything that could be traced to her and threw the bag of her belongings in the dumpster outside his residence. James told investigators that his cousin and his cousin's spouse knew that Sherry was staying with him. He told his cousin that Sherry was going to come and stay with him before he went and picked her up. One night when the cousin had been drinking, the cousin had tried to come into James's house through a back door, but James had to remind his cousin that Sherry was there and he couldn't come over. James also said that his mother knew that Sherry was staying with him, but she did not know the details. He explained that his mother became concerned and called James after she started seeing news stories about Sherry's disappearance on TV. James described himself as being rattled by his experience with Sherry and was concerned about what his involvement meant for him. At the time that Sherry was with him, he believed he was helping out a friend. It did not occur to him that he could get in trouble until he started seeing news stories regarding her disappearance and her allegations that she had been kidnapped. He said, once it hit like, you see everything on the news, but then when it starts getting to the, all right, we're dedicating 2020 to her disappearance. He was surprised by the news stories and told investigators at one point he thought to himself, I'm not going to make any calls because it's like I'm turning myself in for nothing. He figured if the truth was discovered about Sherry's disappearance, law enforcement would come to him and he would not fight it. 
James did not know that there were money rewards for Sherry's return until long after she left. Investigators asked him if he had spoken to Sherry since he drove her back to Reading, and he stated, I haven't talked to her since then. The following is a rundown of the corroborating evidence that investigators collected, and I'm going to try to condense it down as much as possible. James Reyes provided details to investigators about Sherry's injuries that were not known to the public. Phone records show that James and Sherry were in contact by phone using their own phones about 29 times from December of 2015 through March of 2016 prior to her disappearance. James's work schedule showed him off work November 1st and 2nd of 2016, which were not his normal days off, and these dates matched the days that he drove to Reading and picked up Sherry. Rental car receipts showed that James's good friend rented a Dodge Charger in Costa Mesa, California on October 31st, 2016, and the car was returned on November 4th. And receipts showed that the friend rented a Mitsubishi Outlander in Santa Ana, California on November 23rd, 2016, and the car was returned on November 25th, with a round-trip distance between James's residence and Woodland, California, where Sherry was found that was registered on the odometer as matching his story. The table Sherry described as being tied to when she was branded matched a table James had at his residence in a photo posted on Facebook and he confirmed that he used to own that table. The closet in the bedroom at James's residence matched a sketch of the closet that Sherry created for investigators, including a bolt through the shelves of the closet. On or before November 6, 2016, that would be four days after Sherry disappeared, she pinned wood-burning tools on Pinterest. The investigation revealed two prepaid phones that were in communication with one another to Sherry's disappearance and were both near the location of the disappearance at the same time that she went missing. Phone records revealed phone one was purchased by James in December of 2015 and was used almost exclusively to contact another prepaid phone. Phone 2 was purchased approximately in March of 2016 and was used almost exclusively to contact Phone 1. The billing address used when Phone 2 was purchased belonged to James. Cell site analysis showed Phone 1 primarily connected to towers near James's residence and workplace and Phone 2 primarily connected to towers near Sherry's residence. Cell tower records showed that on the evening of November 1, 2016, Phone 1 traveled from Southern California to Reading and that both Phones 1 and 2 connected to the tower closest to Sherry's residence on November 2, 2016, the day of Sherry's disappearance. Both phones were being used and in contact with one another at the approximate time Sherry disappeared. After a text message was sent from Phone 1 to Phone 2, Cell tower records showed that both phones traveled south along Interstate 5 from Reading towards Bakersfield, California. Investigators interviewed Sherry on August 13, 2020, which will be discussed in further detail a little bit later on. And this interview occurred shortly after they spoke to James. And records indicated that Sherry reached out to James in the months after that interview. So at this point, Sherry knew that the jig was up. On September 18, 2020, a number related to a business that Sherry's parents owned called James's known cell phone four times, then again two more times four days later on September 22nd. On October 30, 2020, a phone registered to Sherry's home address 
called James's known cell phone number four times. On August 10, 2020, investigators interviewed James's cousin's spouse. The cousin and the spouse lived across the street from James in 2016 during the time that Sherry was missing. The spouse admitted to investigators that they knew Sherry was staying with James and were told by him that she had a bad relationship with her husband and was trying to get away. The spouse did not see Sherry, that James kept his place locked up, and the spouse did not go over to James's home while Sherry was there. They hardly saw James while she was there, which was not normal for them. James would regularly come over to visit and play with the kids. Once Sherry left, he started coming back over. On August 11, 2020, James's cousin was interviewed by Shasta Sheriff's detectives by phone. The cousin told the detectives that a week before Sherry disappeared, James told them that Sherry was in an abusive relationship and law enforcement was not investigating the abuse incidents. The cousin knew Sherry from her original relationship with James years before and knew she was in his home for several weeks during her disappearance. James asked the cousin and the spouse to not come over while Sherry was there. Anytime anyone came near James's residence, Sherry would call him and he would call his cousin who would run off whoever the person was. Several people were run off during this time, including random neighbors, delivery drivers, the landlord, and maintenance workers. The cousin saw Sherry on two occasions. The first time, the cousin was walking down the driveway of their own residence and saw Sherry standing in the window of James's apartment. When she saw the cousin, she immediately retreated away from the window. On the second occasion, the cousin went back to James's house late at night, which was normal prior to Sherry being there. The cousin forgot that she was there and entered through the back door. When cousin entered, Sherry was in the living room before she ran into a rear bedroom. The cousin was also told by James that Sherry was harming herself. James told his cousin that Sherry asked him to punch her in the face, but James refused. He also told his cousin Sherry cut her hair and purposefully hit her head on the bathtub and on the bathroom floor. Sherry Papini continued to lie upon being confronted. On August 13, 2020, so this is just three days after they spoke to James, an FBI agent and a sheriff's detective with the Shasta County Sheriff's Office interviewed Sherry. Keith sat in on the interview. It was recorded and transcribed in its entirety. At the beginning of the interview, investigators stated, all we want is truthful statements because it's a crime to lie to federal officers, understood? Sherry nodded her head in agreement. Sherry nevertheless continued to make false statements regarding her supposed abduction. They asked Sherry if she could detail the differences in her two abductors, and she stated falsely, the younger one is the one that let me go and was the nicer of the two. The older one was really abusive and really mean and is the one that did all the really terrible things. They presented Sherry with a picture of the coffee table that she had previously provided as the type of coffee table on which she was branded and asked her if she remembered that coffee table. She responded, yes, I do. I do remember that. They showed her the picture of the similar coffee table found on James's Facebook page and she stated, it's been a really long time, so like details and things like that, we did the best we could to take notes on it and all that, but a lot of it's really hard. 
They showed Sherry a photo lineup of Hispanic women, none of whom Sherry recognized as her abductors. They showed Sherry a series of pictures from James's residence, and she falsely denied that it was the location where she was when she went missing. They showed her a picture of the closet in James's home with a pole through the shelving and the picture that she drew of the closet with the pole in previous interviews. Sherry responded, It's a little bit different, but it's pretty, excuse my language, it's pretty fucking similar, but it's different. It didn't look like that. It didn't look like that. Investigators showed Sherry a picture of the window in the room James described as Sherry's room. Sherry responded, I feel like this wood paneling is too thick. I remember it going all the way up to the window is what I'm having trouble remembering. They showed her a picture of the bathroom at James's residence, which matched the layout that she had previously described to law enforcement. Sherry responded, I mean, it doesn't look like the bathroom to me, but the order is, yes, this is the type of order, but this is not what it looked like to me. There was tile in the tub. There was a crack. Investigators showed her a picture of the tile in James's bathroom where it was cracked. Sherry stated, I don't know. They asked her if she remembered what she previously said about a screw that she used to drill through the drywall in the closet while she was abducted. She stated, I dug a hole in the wall and poked it into the wall. Investigators showed Sherry a picture of a hole in the closet of James's home. Sherry stated, it was into the drywall, but no. The investigators explained to Sherry that they were showing her photos of the home that they discovered she had been staying at and that they had spoken to the family who knew that she was there. Sherry responded, oh my God. They asked her if she wanted Keith to stay in the room. After some thought, she asked if she and Keith could talk, so the investigators left the room. When they came back into the interview room, they asked Sherry if she wanted Keith in the room, but she would not answer. So investigators continued with the interview and said, the only way to control things is for us to know. Sherry replied, I know. I don't want you to find her. She's the reason that I get to see my children every day. So here, dreamers, Sherry is still sticking to the narrative that there was a female involved in this. I don't know for sure, but maybe it's because Keith is still there in the room. But anyway, investigators responded, we agree, but we are not going to find her. Sherry replied, I don't want her to get in trouble. They then told Sherry that the DNA evidence found on her clothing at the time of her reappearance belonged to James Reyes and that she was not abducted, but had asked James to pick her up. Sherry replied, no. When investigators asked if that's not what happened, what did happen, Sherry answered, I don't know. No, there is no way. It's James. There's no way. There's no way. They asked her why she was saying it was not James, and she replied, because he loves me. We were friends. There's no way. So she's still acting as though she was a victim here. When investigators directly asked whether James came and got her because she asked him to, she replied falsely, no. When asked when was the last time she had contact with James, she falsely stated that it was before her abduction. She was asked when the last time she saw James was and she replied, I don't know, forever ago when I lived in Southern California. They asked her, you are saying that since you have been married, you have not called James. 
and Sherry falsely responded, no, I haven't called James. They explained that her phone records and the DNA evidence showed that she had been in contact with James, and again they told her, lying to federal agents is a crime. They explained that James provided details that no one else would know. While Keith was still in the interview room, Sherry continued to deny that she ran away with James. Once Keith left the room, Sherry admitted that she and James did talk a little bit before and said, when I went out of town for work, I talked with other guys. I made a mistake and I talked to other men and I shouldn't have. When investigators asked Sherry how she was talking to James, she responded, my work cell phone. She continued to say that she made a mistake for talking to other guys and said, I am horrible. Ultimately, she continued to state it can't be James and did not provide any further information to investigators about her time with James in Southern California. Investigators asked, you were pretty clear earlier when I asked, what did the younger one do? And you said the younger one pointed a gun at you and Sherry falsely responded, she was there and she let me go. They asked, did a woman point a gun at you and put you in the car? Yes or no. And she responded, I don't remember. They continued to ask Sherry what happened with James and she stated, You know who she is. I know you do. I know you know who she is. Sherry did not at any point throughout this interview disavow her repeated statements that two Hispanic women kidnapped her, nor did she ever admit that James had picked her up and that she resided at his home during the period that she was reported missing. On November 4, 2016, a friend of Keith's created a GoFundMe campaign called Help Find Sherry Papini with the following stated purpose. Please help us in raising money to bring Sherry home safe. All the funds will go directly to the Papini family and will be used for search efforts to find Sherry and help bring her home safely. Every dollar counts as time is critical. Thanks. On the same date, in response to a donor's question as to how the funds would be used, a campaign update was made stating, Thank you to everyone who has donated so far today. The funds will be used in any means necessary for the family to bring Sherry home. Keith was listed as the organizer of the campaign, and a member of his family was listed as the beneficiary. In total, the GoFundMe raised approximately $49,070. GoFundMe used a third-party service called WePay that was administered by J.P. Morgan Chase Bank. In essence, the GoFundMe beneficiary was able to withdraw the funds from the GoFundMe through the bank account set up through WePay with Chase Bank. Keith was a check signer on the Chase Bank account used to withdraw the GoFundMe accounts. On December 6, 2016, after Sherry was recovered, Keith wrote check number 101 in the amount of $31,818.13 from the GoFundMe's account at Chase Bank to himself. He signed the check, endorsed it, and deposited it into his own personal bank account via a mobile deposit app on the same date. Also on December 6th, Keith wrote a check number 103 in the amount of $1,160.06 from the GoFundMe bank account at Chase to Sherry. He signed the check as a signatory. Sherry endorsed the check and deposited it into her personal bank account via mobile deposit app on the same date. Keith used approximately $8,212 of the GoFundMe funds to make payments towards his personal credit cards. On December 13, 2016, Sherry was sent approximately $3,053 
to pay off her personal credit card. The remaining amount of funds that Keith withdrew from the GoFundMe campaign was transferred into his and Sherry's personal bank accounts and were spent on personal expenses. Wasting no time on November 28, 2016, just four days after she was recovered, Sherry applied to the California Victim Compensation Board. It provides financial assistance to victims of violent crimes. In the application, a series of questions were asked to determine the eligibility of the victim for the services. I won't go through all of the questions and answers because it's pretty much a rundown of what happened. However, when it got to asking what benefits that she was applying for, Sherry checked the following boxes. Medical dental expenses, moving relocation expenses, mental health treatment, and home security improvements. She signed it under penalty of perjury that everything she said was true, and we know that the only question that she didn't perjure herself on was her name. How it works is if Sherry gets a bill for something that might be eligible to be compensated, she sends the bill and it's either approved or denied. They will also even reimburse her for mileage that she drives for doctor's appointments or anything of the sort related to the crime or the alleged crime. Her application was recommended for approval on December 7th, 2016. So these things are out there to help survivors and they move along relatively quickly, which is good to know. So long as it's a legitimate case, hopefully anyway. And I don't know if Sherry's application was expedited because of the notoriety of it, as opposed to a case that might not get as much media attention, but hopefully it works just as quickly for real survivors. The charging documents did say that the compensation board does limit the number of mental health sessions that could be reimbursed to Sherry to eight sessions. However, an additional treatment plan was required to be submitted on Sherry's behalf and was approved before she exceeded the limit to be reimbursed. Her therapist submitted multiple additional treatment plans as Sherry was diagnosed with acute post-traumatic stress disorder and stated specifically that she had been kidnapped at gunpoint, held hostage for 22 days, and physically and emotionally tortured, beaten, burned, branded, and drugged. The additional treatment plans also stated the following to explain why it was needed. Due to the dramatic nature of the crime and the fact that the client has had multiple interviews with law enforcement agencies, the trauma has been reactivated on multiple occasions, that one of the greatest factors affecting this client's treatment included the fact that her captors have not been located. Based on these submissions by Sherry's therapist, the Compensation Board approved additional mental health treatments to be covered by Sherry's fraudulent PTSD on seven separate occasions. Checks were issued from the State Controller's Office and mailed to either Sherry or the entity to be reimbursed, such as a therapist or emergency services provider. Sherry was notified of every reimbursement the Compensation Board made as a part of the program via detailed statements mailed to her home. These letters stated, Dear Sherry Louise Papini, We have reviewed the bills or payments requests that you have submitted. Some or all of the losses you had as a result of the crime are covered by our program. The attached payment summary explains what we will be able to pay at this time. And then it had all the payment details and whatnot, between 2017 and 2021, Sherry's request for victim assistance funding caused approximately 35 payments totaling over $30,000 to be issued by mail. The following 
is an itemized list and I'm going to round it to the nearest dollar. $1,000 for window blinds, $901 and $1,084 for the ambulance that transported her after her return, All of those payments were made to our therapist. And that last one being on March 8th, 2021, which is about seven months after Sherry was confronted by investigators that they were on to her massive lies and just about one year before she was arrested. So Sherry kept it up for more than four years. If anything, that woman's committed to her therapy or maybe her therapist. Maybe she liked the attention she was getting from him or her. The grand total was $30,694.15. Sherry was originally charged with 39 counts, most of them being those reimbursements that I just read off to you. She pleaded guilty to two counts, mail fraud and making false statements, and will pay more than $309,000 in restitution. The plea agreement is another 14 pages of court documents that I really don't have the patience to read anymore. But as I made my way through this recording, I couldn't help but wonder, why? Why did she do all of this? I don't know if money was the motive at the start of this. I tend to not think so. It seemed to sort of be like an after effect that both Sherry and Keith decided to take advantage of. And I include Keith in that because he paid off a lot of debt with the GoFundMe money. And that's not really what it's for, but maybe the ordeal impacted his ability to work and support his family. Technically, he was sort of victimized by his wife, but not in the way where this money was intended to be used. I don't know. I don't I don't think Keith knew what was going on, but I definitely think he had a feeling something was up with Sherry because she did seem to need attention from men who were not Keith, and she made a lot of efforts to hide it. She hung on to old boyfriends for many, many years, and so the money, I feel like, was a side effect, but I say the attention was the motive. I read an article, and it speculated as to reasons why also, and they're pretty much the same. The first one was the monetary gain, and I'd say I agree, but nearly half of what she ended up getting money-wise went to therapy. And while she may not have needed it because of any kidnapping that didn't happen, maybe she did need therapy in general, and it kind of sounds like she did. The second possible reason stated in the article that I read, and this was on krcrtv.com, was, quote, pathological hero syndrome. This was a fancy way of saying she needed attention. And it's a phenomenon affecting people who seek heroism or recognition, usually by creating a desperate situation 
which they can resolve and subsequently receive accolades from, and this can include unlawful acts. And a third possible reason listed was extrinsic pathway. There is some external event that is going to take place or that is taking place, such as being terminated from a job or a divorce, something like that, that they are trying to avoid from taking place due to a lack of good coping skills. So fabricating some sort of heroic event, in Sherry's case, that would be victimization, to try and avoid that event that's happening or about to happen. So maybe Sherry was getting bored with the humdrum life of being a supermom, bored with Keith, avoiding him, and this boring stay-at-home mom life that she found herself trapped in. Maybe she wanted to spice up her life a little bit, shake up her marriage. Who knows? Maybe someday Sherry will write a book or conduct an interview and be candid about it. Maybe she'll form a little, I'd like to know, but I'll live if I don't ever know. Maybe she'll hook up with Lizzie Liz and form a little federal prison social club later on this year. One thing that did stick out to me was a part of Sherry's story where she said that she was dropped off and then she ran after the vehicle. At the time, she was describing it as though it was her abductors leaving her there on the side of the road or the side of the interstate. Sherry said that she didn't want her abductor to leave her. And I feel like there's some kind of truth buried someplace in that statement for Sherry. I think that there may have been a part of her that didn't want James to leave her. I don't think she really wanted to go back, but knew that she had to. And I do believe that there was that part of her that did miss her children. And you really don't know what it's like to be away from your kids for 22 days and not really knowing when you're going to see them again until it actually happens. And I haven't been a big fan of Sherry Papini. In fact, I don't find her to be very likable or sympathetic at all because of what she did. But she is still human. And it can't possibly be easy being Sherry Louise Papini. Alrighty, my dreamers, that brings this update episode on Sherry Papini to a close. I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode. I know it was long. If you fell asleep, then I've done my job. Don't forget to follow this show on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. And if you want, check out our Patreon. There are dozens of exclusive episodes that you can access for as little as $1 a month. June is almost upon us. It's Pride Month. And I do have a case that I'm going to cover probably in multiple parts, but definitely not as many as the last one definitely not funny either. I mean, it's weird to need a break from the jokes and the funny haha moments, am I right? I'm looking forward to getting back to something a bit more serious. Just me. I do have those keychains and the thank you cards that I owe so many of you and I'm going to mail those out. I'm going to do the drawing for the copy of the Bad Blood book very soon since we're finished with it. 
I want to thank you again for listening to this podcast. I appreciate all of you and I love you all so much. I'm your host, Roseanne. And until next time, sweet dreams.